going to be better for everyone. So, so that is there. But, but let me throw another one out there. And this is what we were um, talking when I was over in Cairo a couple weeks ago. I was talking to them about, which is, you know, this technology getting getting proper medical treatment, accurate medical treatment for people in developing countries that are not in these cities is absolutely critical. So this mm. is where. Fantastic. This is where we as a company are really, really passionate about and where we want to see this technology. Whereas you put some of this hardware like the HoloLens 2, again, it's not hundreds of thousands or twenty, fifty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, but now we're looking at putting that on someone's head at a remote village. Our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety, and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment, and how we govern our business. We are making the world safer, and we're going to have fun doing it. All right, welcome everybody back to the Mission Zero podcast. Uh, coming in hot after Memorial Day weekend, early this morning. Uh, guest today is Kent Harrington. He is the uh, vice president of, and I'm gonna get this right, Tynovix. Did I get Tynovix, it? Tynovix, yeah. All right, you I didn't stumble on it. Man. I had to say it a few times just to make sure I got morning. it right. <laughs> and uh, also, uh, my co-host today, Justin Overstreet, once again to come in and help me out uh, as a co-host. Thank you for being here again, Justin. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, Justin and I talked quite a bit, you know, about bringing you on and he, he was very excited and in, in, in learning a little bit about your company and what you do. I'm excited as well. And I'm excited about where it came from and, and how it, um, you know, how it relates to safety and how it can further the issue of safety. Yeah, and, uh, before we start, uh, too much technical talk, uh, give us a little bit about your past, uh, where you're from, uh, you know, your work history and things like that. Sure. You know, it's, um, uh, <laughs> It's one of those careers that, that just sort of bounces all over the place. So, uh, like you, I went into the military young, went to the Navy and uh, out of high school and actually up here from the Houston area, uh, up in the Woodlands. And uh, I was in, uh, did about eight, eight and a half years, did a few different places, did some search and rescue. I was a swimmer for a long time, back in my skinnier days, if you will. <laughs> uh, met my wife. Uh, she was in the Navy as well. We met overseas. So, the first three months of us dating was going through the Mediterranean. It was just absolutely great. Um, then we got uh, got married. That was over in New Jersey. Went over to Hawaii. Uh, got my undergrad while I was over there. And uh, wife, she got out of the Navy. We went over uh, from Hawaii. We went up to Maine. I switched over from doing, uh, I was a boatswain's mate, so just doing your basic decks type stuff and driving boats and rigging and such. Went to the intel field. So that was a pretty big stretch, right? Jumping from being a deckhand to naval intelligence the oxymoron that it is <laughs> and uh mainly did counter drug stuff down in central america got out in 06 uh, and then i had the opportunity to start doing uh, oil spill stuff so there's a big oil spill over in lake charles excuse me a rain event in lake charles <laughs> in uh, 2006 uh at a, at a customer over there and i went in with a company called o'brien's and yeah. so it was uh, managing large-scale um, whether it's oil spills or disasters and, and, and throughout the years, O'Brien's, 
LeBron's response management. Now it's, uh, um, I don't even know what they're called now. Uh, TOG, I think the O'Brien's group, you know, they, they really were the ones that were primarily dealing with, uh, getting large scale companies ready for disasters and how to respond to it. And, and so I had, you know, several years there, did some stuff overseas for them over in the middle East, got to go back there, love the middle East. You know, just the culture and the, the climate, <laughs> ironically, being that I'm from Midland. Um, and then after that, being I, that you're a ginger. Yeah, being that I'm a ginger, too. Yeah, that, that thank you for getting that out there you're for welcome. all the people. They're all like, oh, this guy's going to be halfway respectful. Now you throw out that. No, we know he's, that, a, he's a redhead. He's soulless. So he's soulless. He's soulless, yeah, which allows me to, to, to swim in the liver. Soulless, but with magic things. powers. Magic powers, yeah. Right. So after, uh, after the, the, the BP oil spill. Okay. 14 months there and uh and, and and after you know 11 people dying on that rig which which i know you two definitely appreciate but it's something that i've just always felt that you know we talk about all the things that happened after that the oil spill and so many things impacting the environment but you know it started off with 11 people losing their lives and and <clears throat> and the attention the detail that needed to be, to be put forward that it wasn't but you know lessons learned there we can talk about that a whole different <laughs> whole different period. So after that, I went over to a company called Nauco. Um, spent three years there as a as a sales engineer, embedded over at uh, Shell Deer Park uh, Refinery and Chemical Plant, really on the chemical plant side. Um, and then after about three years doing that for them, I spent about a year running uh, North America safety for them uh, for the downstream side. So you're looking at uh, 500 plus people in 88 different locations spread out with 20, 22 different divisions. So it was a really big footprint, but that was also, you know, I was the only dedicated full-time safety individual. When you say and, Nalco, you're talking about the chemical company. Yeah, right? Nalco Chemical. Yeah. And at that time it was Nalco, then it became Nalco Champion. And I think they've even, uh, you know, broken apart a little bit more where we have Nalco Water and, and, and Nalco Champion on the downstream side. But, you know, from a safety standpoint, that was that was an incredible journey being at that location, be, you know, or at that position, because the 20 some divisions had to have a safety champion, which I had done previously the previous three years. But you're talking about, you know, a, you know, 500 person organization with one dedicated safety individual. So the the need to get these safety champions to be trained at a certain level, to get them to be committed to a certain level being there was a, a, an extra duty of theirs, that was, that was a huge challenge in my, myself and, and the other two globally we had to deal with. Um, but it turned out to be pretty successful. When, when we're spending most of our time dealing with uh, driving issues, you know, small tickets or fender benders, when, when that's it, and in and, and, and your day-to-day -day operations, you're dealing with process engineering, you're dealing with really nasty chemicals, you're dealing with pressures and pumps and stuff like that. When our biggest issues is fender benders, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good program. And, and that's hats off to the Nalco company, uh, putting that all together. I was placeholder for a year. So, so after that, went over to uh, back into uh, the service line uh, on the environmental side uh, with a few companies. And uh, fast forward to about 2019, I landed where I'm at now. I had a uh, a couple of friends that were uh, basically doing a startup type business. I say startup, and that's sort of disingenuous. That's where I'm at now. Tynovix is that we are the uh, the commercial independent company that's taking the technology from, I say, sister company, Itronics, 
that's a 22-year NASA contractor software development company. So we, we, we saw the opportunity to take all this great software and shift it over into the commercialized world. So whether it's oil field, whether it's industrial, medical devices, you know, that, that we were talking about a little bit earlier, there's a lot of different things we, we have our fingers in now because it's the, hey, just like we invented Velcro for the space industry, well, we've invented all this other great technology of advanced stuff. Now it's getting it into whether it is the oil field or whether it is the industrial world. And that's sort of where I'm landed at now. So is there a, uh, is there a certain amount of time that that technology, whether it is Velcro or whether it is the technology that, that Tynovix uses, is there a certain period of time that that's only available to NASA and then it becomes uh, deregulated is probably not the right word, but deregulated somewhat where it now becomes, it can become part of the uh, public domain. It's, it, it's not as rigid as that in some cases. Uh, I, you're sort of on there, you know, Justin, that there are a few, like there's several technologies that we've been developing that, that are very close, you know, close to the chest, you know, uh, type stuff that, that we can't really share and go out mm -hmm. through. So, yeah, we definitely have that aspect of it. The stuff that we're dealing with now, it's not that we ever had real restrictions. And when we, <clears throat> if y'all want to talk about that, that's fine. It's that we collectively never made you know, a huge push. You know, we've had commercial uh, clients and you know, uh, there's some there's some large clients that we have that like uh, building apart, taking apart engines, putting them back together. We've had that for years and years. It wasn't until maybe about a year and a half ago or two years ago that, that the, uh, the other owners, they really decide, hey, let's make a strong commercial push to get as much of this technology out into the real world to help people and, uh, and, and hey, even turn a profit on it as well. Yeah, when that's when that's put on paper, the amount of technology, the advancements that's come out of the space program have been <laughs> remarkable. And that's just that's not just from you know the comp you know your company. That's right. from all of it, right? Absolutely. It's, if you look at it, it, it's a it's a it's a quite a resume. Um, before we get into the individual ones, can you can you give a broad overview of your company exactly what they're doing? Sure. So you know, Tynovix as a whole is a is a holding company, and and then through Tynovix, we've created sort of your sub companies. Uh, TOT, uh, Tynovix Oilfield Technologies, which is what uh, Jess and I uh, are familiar with. And then we also have Vulcan, <laughs> um, Vulcan for the medical device side. Um, and then we have uh, Tynovix um, uh, Industrial Technologies, I think it is, our <clears throat> services, TIS. So what we do uh, civically, like uh, with TOT, is they take this technology and, and they take it to market. So they've got a great footprint. When we when we set up TOT, we partnered with a great technology in the oil and gas company as it is called BOPX. And, and so BOPX already had a good reputation on the upstream side of, uh, especially on the offshore upstream side of, of taking, um, you know, their testing technology uh, to market. And so they already had that customer base. And so they were able to grab our technology, work with it, and then they take that to market. And that's specifically around like the augmented reality type okay. world. And, and I know that's, that's something that maybe not a lot of people understand when we talk about augmented reality. But well, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, okay. Explain. You know, of course, we all have. You know, if we've never actually touched it, we've all have our. It's almost like a video game to most it, people, right? It, it and, is. It is. And so, um, you, you know, I've seen a little bit of it on the commercial application, but I want you to explain it to the audience. No problem. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, first and foremost, it's really making the distinction between what what most people know, which is VR, virtual reality. Mm -hmm. 
and augmented reality. And what the distinction is between the two. Uh, virtual reality is something that we've all seen time and time again in movies. Uh, Ready Player One was a movie that came out a few years ago, and that was really built on the idea that the future, everybody would be in virtual reality. And if, if you've never seen it before, basically, you wear something over your eyes and you can't see anything beyond it. It's just what you have over your eyes and or you know, ears as well. So that's virtual reality. And, and it can be as spectacular as you, you think you're sitting in this room, you put that on and you're on a roller coaster somewhere or you're flying through the sky. Everything 100% is virtual. Augmented reality is, is going back to that first keyword, which is augmented. So what, what we do or what the industry does is we take your ability to see this room right here, this coffee table that's in front of us, and through glasses, you're able to project an object onto that table in a 3D type of a world. So think of like a heads-up display, except instead of that heads-up display always being static and in front of you, this augmented reality, you're able to interact and walk around a three-dimensional projection in front of it. Um, Tony Stark level type stuff. Mm -hmm. The only difference between the Tony Stark movies and what we have is in Tony Stark, you didn't have to wear a visor, uh, glasses, or hollow lens too, which is what we use. Here, you have to use that because that projection is being done inside of those those lenses that go over your eyes. So. Okay. Um, so the applications for this, you've mentioned medical, you've mentioned oil field. Mm -hmm. What are the, you know, what is the gambit of what, you know, what, what, are, what are the applications, right? Yeah. So the, the applications start coming into the, the realization that this is a wearable computer mm -hmm. and that you start really seeing that, uh, that great uh, symbiotic relationship between computers and the human. Um, and I know uh, Elon Musk has talked about this with his neural link and stuff where they're basically putting it into, yeah. into your brain. We're, obviously, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a, a human computer interface at a, a, a very basic level. The and to give a little back history, if I can, the the idea of of augmented reality. A lot of people have seen it with the Pokemon Go. They can see it on their phone. It, you know, something being projected in front of it. Google Glasses tried to go at this a you know a bunch of years ago, and you never really saw any good hardware. The software was okay. We were able to develop the software to deal with this, but it was the hardware itself that that was really lacking until about 2015. In 2015, Microsoft came out with the HoloLens 1, the first generation, and it was leaps and bounds ahead of anyone else out there as far as hardware. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it from a distance, even when I was doing the emergency response stuff, that I'm like, wow, that is great because you're able to 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 interact with the world around you never being a believer that virtual reality would be the way that we would go. But you're able to interact with the world around you. But, okay, I'm in the oil and gas. It's not intrinsically safe. So it's not something that we'll be able to play with, you know, going forward. Fast forward about two years or three or four years later to 2019. And Microsoft came out with the HoloLens 2. So the second generation. And man, as much as HoloLens 1 was a huge jump, second one was even better. And it just really up the game and no one else is out there even come close to that hardware at the same time that the hololens 2 came out microsoft had already partnered with a company called trimble who's got a great reputation around the world of building construction technology gps stuff uh, if you're doing um 
if, if you're shooting, you know, um, the areas because you need to get, you know, depth and volume and such for like a dike area, a uh, survey, excuse me. So Trimble took the hardware of the HoloLens 2 and put it into a you know, helmet mounted iteration of it that's intrinsically safe, class one div two. So in, in, a, in, a, in a real quick sweep, we got a second generation HoloLens 2, but then we also got a intrinsically safe version of it. That's early 2019. They started coming out at the end of 2019, which is whenever I came on board with Tynovix. And that's whenever you saw us really being able to see that we now have the hardware and we have the software. But let me get, I, I digress there. So let me get back to what you were asking is, is how does this really play into the safety world? Yeah. And, and that's from the wearable computer aspect of it. But also, eventually, I want you to, you know, one of the questions is, you know, I want you to talk about too high, not just the safety world. So tell me how it works everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we can jump into that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, the, the idea of where it can work. So, for example, in the, in the manufacturing type world, um, when you're looking at an engine, and, and let, me, let me break down a little bit more of the capabilities of this hardware first, because then it can start introducing, as, as I know Justin went through a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. all the other things that you can do with this. Well, and, and a year and a half ago, when you showed the technology to me, it was in the context of, hey, this technology has been in use in the International Space Station around a very critical, uh, a very critical um, process. Uh, yep, yeah, process. Yep. And and there, and then we got to actually do that process. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not in space. It was a great disappointment. <laughs> I thought you guys would give me the simulators and things like that. It didn't happen. <laughs> and, and we can talk about that offline. But mm -hmm. the the application of this in the space station was what intrigued me. I was like, man, this technology. There's something to it if they're willing to use it there. Yeah. And so uh, that was interesting to me. And then and then that application carried over into industry mm -hmm. is is what you guys were tra trying to capture, right? Right. And that, and that part of the technology is really a digitalization of procedures. And, and, and for, I know for the three of us sitting here and probably for a lot of your audience, digitalization of procedures is nothing new. We've been going down for the last couple of decades trying to get rid of the paper format and putting it something digitally to be able to capture it. A lot of people see that it manifests itself in the way of a, a, an iPad or a tablet. And to quote a good friend of mine, that's the heavier version of a piece of paper. You know, you're still using your hands connecting it. <clears throat> Excuse me, you're still using your hands to control it. Whereas the augmented reality it projects in front of you. It's a Microsoft product. So you're able to use your word, you're able to use your outlook. And really it, the way that most people interact with it is you have a screen that's being projected into your field of view and you're able to move it around, resize it, bring up pictures, bring up PDFs, bring up schematics, all this information. When you say move it around, what do you mean by that? Like, so, so yeah. So um, imagine that you have a regular computer monitor in front of you. And it's giving you that display. Uh, so it's just floating there in the air. And then it, the, the hardware tracks your hand movements. And that's one of the ways you interact with it. So Does this it, requires some type of glove? No, no, it doesn't require oh. gloves. It, it, it works with gloves if you need to. So if you're mm -hmm. out and, and having to do you know, wear safety gloves. But it, it tracks your digits. And so through just grabbing something 
with your hand, an imaginary screen in front of you, you're able to move around or you can move it from a distance like you have a mouse pointer. And so you can start having multiple screens filling up all of your, your viewpoint if you want, and then you're able to look around and see them without having to go and buy a bunch of monitors and mm -hmm. maintain And that. you can also see the objects that are beyond that yes, field of view because it's in the background. It's yeah, actually you can there see all you in the room. It. Yeah, it, it, and it, it does depend on that. And it, we're able to, to fine-tune it that if you don't want to see what's behind it because you want real strong clarity, like when we were talking about the medical device, we have uh, the ability to grab ultrasound machine or ultrasound images and project them in your field of view. So if you've if you've ever gone and seen the ultrasound machines, one they're they're typically very large, <laughs> they're very expensive, tens of thousands of dollars on the machines, but their monitor is usually also fixed. And so the it may seem simple, but just that simple act of having to turn back and forth look at the screen and then look back at the patient that becomes repetitive if you're doing a lot of them you can have some issues there but we also use ultrasound for what we call needle guidance which is if you're trying to get a needle into a specific part of the body mm -hmm. you're using the ultrasound to guide it every step of the way off the of surgery right mm -hmm. right and you know, when i had my back worked on the navy over at a, at a, at a tripler or or as they would call it, Army Medical Facility, the neurosurgeons there, they were fantastic, and, and they fixed my back great. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not messing with them at all, but, but they were using x-rays to guide in those mm. needles. And so they'd have to step back, take a shot, and then come back. And, and, and so needle point guidance with ultrasound is a great, great way to do this, uh, going in and doing like a nerve block and, and stuff like that. Well, with our technology, He's able or, or she's able to sit there with the ultrasound, one hand on the ultrasound probe, one hand on the needle, and the view is right in front of them. I mean, just within inches of where they're looking at. So that guidance, that ability to see that as they're going in is, is really, really beneficial for them. I, I, I want to dig into the medical side of sure. it. Uh, before that, let's, let's continue, if you don't mind, with the oil, mm -hmm. the oil and gas energy side. I get my question would be indefinitely from the outside looking in, if if someone in safety from the oil field is listening mm -hmm. right now and they know what you just said, you, you've got these glasses on, you, mm -hmm. you, you're able to see, you're able to open up screens, you're able to open up documents, things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, in the past, what I, you know, what I had seen with augmented reality was that you could see what you were looking at and mm -hmm. say, you would see a pipe and, and you could, push that pipe and it would tell you what's in it mm -hmm. and what the temperature is, what the pressure is. Uh, I, my question, one of my questions is, is that kind of what it does? But generally my question is a worker's on the rig floor, right? Tell me what your technology is doing safety wise and, and, and what, tell me what they can do. So it's, from a from a, let me start with a broader thing of what it does from a safety is less people on board. So because you have that first person view intrinsically safe and they're able to wear it, uh, we've got customers that don't have to fly out that, that OEM reps anymore because now they can put this on and they can get into, you know, telecommunications conference with them Great. And, and, and bring in as many different engineers from Netherlands, from, from uh, India, from the United States all the time while they're sitting there offshore in Malaysia. So from a broad picture, you, you're able to to look at, you know, you're lowering your count, lowering your travel costs. 
Very good. Well, during COVID, it wasn't a matter of talking to customers about, hey, you know, we can help you reduce costs by having our technology out there. You can get this video streaming and live feed with minimum amount of bandwidth. And so now you're going to save money. No, the conversation wasn't that. It was they can't fly people out there because of COVID. And you still have a lot of countries that are locked down. So one of our first good customers, they could not get their repair engineers on site and a turnaround was going to be stopped because of it. And by working with them, they were able to get, you know, the rig itself, the hard hat you know, uh, over there. And they were able to guide those local mechanics into how to fix those valves. And that was a, that was a, a critical step to be able to show that it, technology is going to let us be able to expand our footprint around the world. So now you can have a couple of engineers manning you know, video streams from half a dozen different locations around the world versus having an engineer fly out to this one, having an engineer fly out to that one, having a technician go out to that one. So from broad from the broad part, that's where we look at just from safety. Now for the actual, you know, the the the, the deck hand that's right there on the drill floor itself, the 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 quickest way that we've been able to show its impact on safety is that you you have access to any of the information you may need right away without having to deal with paper without having to deal with you know if it's going to get wet you know it, whatever happens there so that's a small part but when you start looking at combining it with procedures and step and that's what we talked about a little bit earlier with the digital procedures then you know that that rig hand is doing step one, step two, step three, step four. And those procedures, they're, they're able to be looked at at the same time by anyone. And, and, and I need to explain that a little bit itself. When we see the, the creation of digital procedures around the world and throughout the last couple of decades, it's been an iteration of PDF and you download the PDF and that's what your, that's what your digital procedure is. And now you've got it on your tablet. When we created this for NASA, they need a different view. They need to have the astronaut up in space using this digital procedure, and they also needed the 58,000 people down on Houston observing it in real time at the same time. And so we, we ended up building ours a little bit differently than most people have because of that requirement. So the ability for someone to observe every step of the way of what the procedure is from a safety standpoint means you're going to have the right eyes at the right time. It, and that's our opinion of it. Um, our various people are able to do, say, if if I'm starting a one shift, I'm going through the procedure, I'm able to put my notes in, and I get to step 7.8, and then I stop. Well, whenever Justin comes in on the next shift, his starts right back up at 7.8. So he's able to see where it was, notes, and go down from there. So the workers would exchange the same piece of equipment? They can, but it's they're logging into the same server. And so if they have the right type of uh, permissions and such, they jump back into that very same procedural instance. And that's what we call it. So the procedure itself is still maintained behind the MOC, Management of Change Barrier, you know, firewall, if you will. But then that individual instance is created so that anyone that needs to get into it can and observe. Okay, so say a Pete, you said... Um a great benefit is the, you know, the ability to bring an OEM engineer in <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. Does that, you know, if that engineer is in Malaysia, as you mentioned, would they need to have your technology to do that? To no. this? No, no. The only person that would need, and, and I say the technology, yeah, I think you mean hardware. Yeah, hardware. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardware. So it's art and we're not, we're not a hardware manufacturer. And 
and I guess to, to sort of sum it up, our technology, our software technology works. It's on, on any various types of hardware. HoloLens 2 is just the best one out there right now. If the Apple version of it, Apple Eyes or whatever they call it, comes out tomorrow and it meets all of it and it's better, you know, we'll start looking at the transition there. But no, the engineers, um, they just need to have a computer with internet access or a phone. I mean, I, I, Justin, I don't know if you were able to see it, but you know, right now, whenever we, we work with customers or when we show it to new customers, the great thing is, you know, put the hard hat on your head and you and I get on a call and I'm using my phone to the call. Um, yeah, we were able to do some of that video conferencing stuff and we had talked about it for some of Wildcats overseas applications, mm -hmm. you know, having uh, the HoloLens over in Saudi or, or wherever it would That's be right. and those mechanics putting whipstocks together mm -hmm. with our expertise here, being able essentially to look through their eyes at what they're doing and see what's happening. And you can do that from your desktop, from your phone, from wherever. And then the idea is, you know, like you mentioned uh, earlier, all of these are Microsoft products. So they all work with SharePoint, OneDrive, all of mm -hmm. that stuff. So like changeover notes, maybe I've got this, the, I've got my HoloLens assigned to me. You have yours assigned to you. Kent has his assigned to him. Kent finishes his shift. I put mine on. It's got a, you know, I see on my heads up display, basically, Hey, there are the notes, click on it. I know exactly where to pick up what he did and how it works. It's, it's pretty impressive. The technology is really amazing. So you put remote desktop in the field. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what you did. That's exactly. Right. And, and everything we're talking about right now, I, I typically say there's four different levels of it. There's the, the crawling speed, which is just the telecommunications aspect of it, which mm -hmm. is probably the most popular aspect right now as people are getting used to this technology and, and, and there's two different cultures that have to be changed uh, to really for people to address it. So that's the crawling speed. The walking speed is when you start getting that, that multi-person collaboration on the procedures at the same time. So um, on the downstream side, uh, which is probably where most of my background is, when you look at the inside you know, control board operator versus the outside operators that are crawling across the stacks, they are going through a procedure that's 20, 30 pages long because it's a startup of the entire unit. Well, each individual has their own civic part to play, and each person needs to do this step or that step and playing through it. So the, the walking speed is having everybody within that program doing it at the same time as appropriate. And then something as simple as uh, having an icon. You know, a computer screen is the icon for the control board operator, DCS board operator to do this part. And then the hard hat is for the out guy, you know, the outside operator for him or her to do her part. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. So it's something as simple as that is what we've already been able to do and push out. But it eliminates the, the need to be over the radio as much. It eliminates those mistakes that happen because now, okay, oh wait, I'm trying to listen in. It's it's you know, the is is again the radio call from the inside operator. I'm supposed to be doing you know, pump 67 instead of pump 68. You know, those things start becoming eliminated because now it's being projected in front of this field of view or chat windows being projected in front of this field of view to do this one or that one. Or he isn't quite sure of the location, so he's able to bring up a map or he's able to bring up the uh, the, the image of the pump itself because of training. And, and there's a whole world of training that we've been going down with various customers about getting people used to seeing things. So you're your training of an outside operator goes from six months down to you know, six weeks type stuff. So that's just the walking speed. The running speed is when we start bringing in 
third-party data into those procedures. And that's where you, what you mentioned earlier, that's where you're able to say, okay, what's the, the, the flow rate of this valve? What's the, or not valve, but, you know, flow rate of this, or what's the steam temperature of this and things. When you start getting that third-party data that flows into the procedure, um, that's whenever you, you, you're t- you've taken up another level. You really are. And whether that's why originally when I th- when I thought about the application into the oil field, it seemed like it was uh, more likely to be an offshore it, application, yeah. like it fit better out there. I, I, I think that uh, I think the initial phase, which is why we've gone this way commercially in the last you know, nine, 10 months, is the offshore. Uh, mm-hmm. It meets a lot of those low hanging fruit type of requirements mm-hmm. for uh, the money that you put into it, the immediate impact on your ROI for not having to fly people offshore as much, um, you know, and just to touch on the medical side. So, so we're looking to have this um, over overseas right now for some of the rigs for just their medical staff on board. So if somebody gets injured, how quickly can we make, and, and it's a case management type of approach. How quickly can we determine if we can treat that individual through a first date on board or if we need to start flying them back on a helicopter. And Justin, mm. remind me, how much is a helicopter flight offshore? Ten. Uh, they're not giving them away? Yeah, they're not they're not giving them away. No, they're not. So it's so putting it on in just a couple of these, and these you know, these things aren't twenty, forty, fifty thousand dollar, you know, mm. type of hardware. But putting that in there so that the the on the on site medic can put it on and log into, you know, a doctor that's on shore. Be able to do a quick examination if necessary and make the determination from a case management standpoint. Treat them with first aid there, or do we need to put them on a helicopter? Get them back. I know. I know you want to get into the medical stuff at, at some point because it it is really interesting. Also, but I want to jump back just a second and touch on something you said when you were talking about the different speeds and that entry level speed. You said there are two cultural elements there mm. that need to change, yeah. and I'm curious what those two are. Uh, and if you're seeing any movement in those cultural changes. Yeah. So it's a it, good question. Yeah. This, that question was originally put forth uh, and, and I answered it was doing a conference for uh, uh, it was over in Southeast Asia back in the last fall. And it was asking, what are the challenges of this technology? And, and I said, really, it's two cultural changes. One, it's going to be, you know, the individual in the field, getting him or her to accept such advanced technology. And it's going to be at the corporate level, getting them to accept such technology. And I think that you have to have both at the same time. And, and what I mean on the corporate side is, is the, the idea that bandwidth is probably the biggest issue that we have on the corporate side. In that, and what I mean by that is how fast of the internet speed on the rig itself. Mm-hmm. You, when you look at the offshore world, we still see a tremendous amount you know, by percentage of offshore rigs, whether they're, you know, uh, um, uh, a platform rig or, uh, or I should say producing rigs, it's not that much of an issue anymore because we typically will run hardwire or hardline out to it. But when you're looking at the, the ones still poking holes, their bandwidth is really slow. Hmm. You know, anyone that's gone offshore lately will tell you that it's still hard to get emails and things like that. So the idea of having a streaming bandwidth now you're in the you know, 10, 15, 20 megabytes a second. That's, that's something that a lot of people are just saying, well, we don't really need that because you know, we, 
we don't want to have to spend the money, the extra $20,000 a year or $40,000 a year to get that bandwidth. We don't see the return. Just for the best. infrastructure to support that. Right. right. And, and it's not really just on our infrastructure either. It's, it's going to be on, on other smart technology that's trying to get into the industrial oil field. So that's getting the corporate level to accept it. But then the, going back to the individual on the field, getting him to um, get, getting him or her you know, to accept this advanced technology. It, it's it's pretty easy for them to accept the telecommunications of it. It's a little bit more of a challenge to get them to accept the uh, digital community or digital procedures aspect of it. Then it's another step to get them at that running speed to get them to accept the third party data flows that's coming into that. So what you witnessed or what you used down at the NASA facility a year and a half ago was your procedure was being updated as you were flipping the switches on that board. Correct. And so that data from that switch was going into our server and then being populated correctly into that procedure to move it to step two. So step 1.1 tells you to flip this switch. You flip it, procedure automatically takes you to step 2.2, And one of the interesting things, Jeff, that it would do is, is if the switch was outside of your field of view, there would be an arrow yeah. moving that direction to point you, hey, look over here, dummy. It's yeah. it's over mm-hmm. here. And that's wow. that's the, the the fourth level, the Tony sure. Stark level, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's where you start getting three D guidance and interaction. Yeah. <clears throat> when we look at what we can do now with the hardware and the software capabilities, is we can take an entire unit of a of a refinery or a chemical plant, not the entire refinery chemical plant. We'd have to break that down. Well, you can take the entire unit that's, you know, city block size. We can put all the piping into the heart, you know, into the headset. We can put all of the feeds into it, even to the point where you can have that DCS controller outside manipulating the controls. I say manipulating, you know, you're working the controls as necessary. You can run an entire unit off of this. You absolutely could. And, and even from the safety standpoint is you can have those artificial walls that this is an H2S area. As you walk up to it, it materializes in front of you and says, do not go in until you've Almost confirmed. like a virtual fence, right? Right. It's a virtual yeah. fence. So when we talk about safety capabilities, and I know this is this is probably the neatest part of all of this, but I thought we had to build all this groundwork <laughs> to get up to it is, you know, when we talk about safety capabilities and where this technology is going, and when you start bringing in stuff like AI and deep machine learning, here's the near future of what's really going to look like is that you're going to have everybody wearing these things because everybody's going to need to be tied into the system. Um, and, and I don't mean that everybody's on the same system, but every company will have their own version of it to be, ha- you know, to have that smart worker. But you're going to be able to do, you know, as, as you do your, your, um, your, your morning safety brief, as you're, as you're getting your JSA, you're going to run your JSA through this. And you're going to walk the area. So if you're the supervisor, if you're the the safety guy or whatever, you're going to walk the area and you're going to pinpoint safety hazards as you walk through. Uh, that that chair over there, that's a safety hazard. Well, you know, drop down menu. Well, what is it? It's a safe, it's a chair, you know, and then all the appropriate issues or all the appropriate risks that are associated with a trip hazard or you know, all those things will auto-populate. And then, so you're building your JSA off of this as you walk around and you may be taking pictures to associate with it. But then when you come back, you then spread it out to the rest of your team as the JSA. 
but then the location, all that is uploaded at the same time. So you don't need to know about a trip hazard that's 200 yards away. But when you're getting closer to it, you start getting a warning that's flashing up in front of it. Hey, you're approaching this trip hazard. This is the threat you need to be looking out for. And when you combine that with the ability to sort of scan the area, then you start picking up, hey, is this a, is this a trip hazard over here? The, the system alerts you there is a potential trip hazard because it recognizes it through deep machine learning. Now it's asking you to confirm it. Yes, it is. Boom. You broadcast it out to everybody else. Now a brand new trip hazard has come into place that everybody can see in real time. Right. So at the, with the, with the, a, the machine learning, the mm -hmm. big data capabilities, all of that, mm -hmm. then the, the software becomes predictive in nature, yes. right? It can start prompting you, you know, Hey, are you mm -hmm. sure that's not a trip hazard? And you're looking at 360 degree view. So Correct. right now the view is just going to be about, you know, uh, 180 degrees in front of you. But as we start seeing the ne the next level of hardware that comes out, it's going to be easy to get extra sensors around. So now you're having that 360 real time. So Elon Musk said we, you know, we were effectively androids with our phones, <laughs> but this will make us absolute androids. Yeah. I mean, there's cyborgs. No, cyborgs. I mean, well, excuse me, cyborgs, not androids. I, I, I think he said. Uh, I think he said that we were uh, symbiotic. Yeah. With it uh, because of our phones. So you know, what. What he was referencing to, yeah, his his referencing or his argument was people are worried about, uh, you know, the neural link and they're worried about, you know, the, the computer being a part of your life and, and that AI mm -hmm. and all the worries there. And already is. Yeah, he, he was making that point, I think. Mm -hmm. And not to speak to him too much, but he was like, hey, guys, it's already here. Look at your phone. We're already in a symbiotic relationship with it. Well, something you said uh, tipped off to me because, you know, I was looking for, okay, well, you know, I, how would you exactly sell this? How would you exactly convince people of the benefits? But now I saw with this generation, you know, in studying and putting together safety plans, and mm -hmm. I know just seen this, most of the injuries come from green hats. Yes. So it's or really, really old guys that have done it yeah. hundred times this way. And it's because they haven't been around. They haven't been trained as much. And they're not, they're not as, uh, you know, experienced in whatever it is that Wildcat or whoever it is mm -hmm. doing what they're doing. So. You know, if this person doesn't doesn't know that trip hazard's there, he doesn't know how hot that pipe is, he will now. Yeah. You know, so I think that's a I, th I think I see the benefit a big benefit there is like okay, well, maybe take a take that those injuries for new people down a notch, which would really help a an overall score for a company as far as his injury rate is concerned. Yeah, it, it's um, you know, the the training aspect of it, getting people used to it, the. You know, there's not a whole lot that we can't do, uh, whether it's even adding an infrared camera onto it. So if you're coming up to something and you need to get the heat reading, it's like, hey, why is that pump running, you know, 100 degrees hotter than it normally should, things like that. It's it's really just using technology in, in, in a more predictive type way. What is it? It's not that it's predicting the future and pulling, you know, you know opening up a fortune cookie. It's taking all of these data pieces. So in, and to, to digress a little bit about megadata, you know, metadata and all the big data type stuff, it was this was an issue we ran into in the intelligence business. And you know, this that was 15 years ago. We have so much data coming in that there's no way we can process all of it. And people say, well, that's what supercomputers are for. I'm like, yeah, but you, you still need to have a, a laser focus on what you're trying to achieve out of it. So when we start bringing in all this data and we get those greenhorns that are out there and we want to keep them safe until they can learn, 
how to operate. We, we've got to be able to get all that data and put it in front of their eyes, mm. in front of their eyes in a way that they can use it. And that they can, they can be in that symbiotic relationship with technology. Do you have a, um, any type of case study or anything that, um, a potential customer, someone interested in your company from the oil field or the energy business could see, or do you have anything published? Uh, we've, it, it we're, I know that we're working on, on a couple of, we don't call them case studies on the medical side, but I know we're working on a couple of uh, papers on the medical side. Um, as far as like a white paper on the oil and gas side, I think I saw, I know is it hydro drill or? So hydro drilling. Yeah, yeah they're, they're an Italian uh, drill company. Okay. Um, we did we did some good work with them. I don't think we I don't think <laughs> I don't think I ever got around to, to having the time to put it down on paper on what the scenarios were. Um, I know it's in our it's in our queue to have things done. <laughs> I do know one that a few things you got to get yeah, done. <laughs> yeah, one of the few things I will say, and I know we we keep staying in oil and gas, even though we say they're not going to, but <laughs> it is a really interesting application and definitely the future, I think. But one of the limitations too is going to be uh, just the, the fact that a lot of the population in the industry are not real technologically savvy, mm -hmm. especially as you get closer to the, to the drill bit. Right. Yeah. And that if, if I were looking at it, again, talking about that corporate change, right? If mm -hmm. I was looking at it from a corporate strategy standpoint, that would be one sticking point for me. Okay, mm -hmm. this is really cool. How are we going to teach the guys to intuitively be able to use this and how easy is that? So have you guys begun to bridge that gap and, and figure out exactly how to streamline teaching someone to just use the software within the hardware? Yeah, it's that, that's a good question. We, we definitely took our lumps and, and when we went to training and there's, there's a wide spectrum of people training. Um, are, are people out there? There's people that are still using the flip phones that just aren't really into technology, uh, all the way up to, you know, you know, kids, you know, you put this thing on my, you know, my daughter's head and 13 years old and 10 minutes, she was far more productive than most people that go through it. it it's really just uh, the very nature of, because as Microsoft is, it's very intuitive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we start with that crawling speed. Right. We, we start with the crawling speed, just get the telecommunications aspect up and going. And then we start looking at and migrating up to the walking speed about how they interact with those procedures. And and I think it's really important. And I think a lot of your, your listeners will all everybody will appreciate that. This is that people don't like change unless they can see a really great benefit. And any time that we're trying to to get them to move on to something else, they first have to fire what they're currently doing. So Henry Ford had to get people to fire the horse and buggy ride before, look, this truck is better. I was Our, just thinking that in my head. Yeah. About the faster horses. They, they do, right. Oh, it's man. like, oh, it's just a faster horse. No, mm -hmm. this this is getting people in the field really to appreciate that this can save them significant amount of time. When we look at, and, and now that you, you mentioned that, when we look at the company guy uh, down there offshore um, for, for a super major that's using it off of Brazil, you know, he's saving you know, realistically an hour a day in the shift just by being able to do that real-time inspection out there on the rig floor as he's walking around. And people may think, okay, well, that's not that big of a deal, but that's an hour's less of him getting done on the rig floor, going back, sitting at his computer, and typing out from his notes, handwritten notes. Now it's he's out there, he sees something, 
He makes note of it. He does the the voice to text aspect of it, and he's typing in. You know, all he's doing when he goes back, he's just fine tuning. Taking an hour of unproductive time and making an hour of very productive. Yes, time. yes, it is That's it, a huge difference. It, it, and it and it adds up. So mm-hmm. the the challenge really is getting people in the field to see how much of a benefit this will make their lives, and it is a challenge, Justin. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. Justin, what was the biggest benefit that Wildcat saw the possibility of this? What like what did you see and say, okay, here's how we could use it? Yeah, we, we really like the idea of, of being able to remotely run procedures uh, with people who are maybe less experienced with putting equipment together, you know, that kind of stuff. The idea of being able to um, assemble components overseas with uh, you know, expert assistance here in the States, that was a real benefit. Um, and then just, you know, I thought the technology was really cool. I love technology anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, an opportunity to, to really think about, you know, what do you, where, where are we going as an industry? Where are we going as a, you know, a segment of the industry, meaning safety and how do you, you know, like we were talking about just before this, and we said, if, if you're just the, you know, clipboard carrying checklist safety person, which there's benefit in that to an extent, your days are probably numbered and they're numbered by technology. And so the idea that you need to begin to think beyond what we're doing now excited me as well. And, and, you know, these guys were fantastic to work with and and look at their technology. We got to, you know, we got to really play with a lot of things. The, the idea that you could send a fully rendered image in front of you completely deconstruct that image and rebuild it mm-hmm. was really interesting yeah. because you're rebuilding a virtual image that's in front of you. But in terms like he talked about in terms of, of reducing that training time or training speed from six months, you know, for a mechanic down to six weeks. Well, that's because he's getting to completely break down and rebuild whatever he's a mechanic for with no cost to not getting that right. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's, pretty incredible uh benefit from that aspect and i'll even take you further that that you haven't seen yet justin is one of our customers we we've got like the the piece of machinery um so we'll we'll call it um we'll call it a pump right so on that pump we've got all the various parts already identified so you're able the the procedures that they have puts that pump or it, it replaces this part replaces that part so it tells you with the 3D holographs, you know, move, pick up this piece and move it over. And it's each individual step as you go through it. And then at the very end, uh, you're able to uh, see it all put together. But then you can basically have it expand outward each individual part. And then you're able to touch each individual, whether it's O-ring or screw or bolt or anything. And what that does is it then calls, and I'm using a little technical terms here, it calls through an API another company's uh, data system. So in this case, we're calling, I think it, we're calling their part systems from their SAP. And so then we're able to get that individual part, all the information that we want, and then we can send it to their ordering service. Uh, so it, it may seem like a, a very simple thing because for both of us, lug heads is a push button, button work. But the complexities of being able to use that 3D image sitting here in front of us next to the pump and like, oh man, I'm, I'm inspecting this pump and this O-ring is out. You know, I can look over to my left, I can touch that O-ring, it brings up, this is the O-ring, and then it can show you how much is in stock and where it is. It's out of stock. 
you hit another button, and then it goes to that company's ordering system to order that part to be able to be sent to you. That is 30 seconds in the field, three hours back in the so office did, on the phone. Did you, just, did you just tell us you also can greatly help supply chain? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So supply chain, whether it's SAP, IBM, uh, Maximo, uh, a few different things. Uh, I know we looked uh, real heavily at a y'all supply chain and mm -hmm. how to integrate into it as well. It, it really is one of those things where when you sit down and you start thinking about it, your brain goes a million different places on how this could help. And then simultaneously you're like, man, that's going to be cool and a lot of work. But once it's all set up, data yeah, entry, intensive. it's unbelievably efficient. Yeah. Well, so it looks like, you know, your greatest obstacle is overcoming Jacobite. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, what else, what else could you say? It would be, you know, it's almost getting to the point where, you know, like, like Justin says, this is the future. You said yep. it too. This is, the, it's, it's going to go there. Your resistance is to your own detriment. It's just like all the other things in technology. Your resistance is, you're just going to be left behind. Yeah. Um. So, you know, moving on from the oil and gas. Sure. Finally. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, that's on, that's on me, I guess. No, Absolutely on, on Justin. No, no, I, I can blame Justin. I get blamed for most everything, so I'm used to it. I'm good. <laughs> we talked uh, initially, you said, uh, you know, you'd given us a little bit about the needle guidance, mm -hmm. and that's really cool. Uh, what other, you know, benefits can you, or what, I guess, how can you help the medical community or how are you helping the medical community? So it's, um, and, 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 and so we've got we've got IP on this, so we've got the the patents that have been issued, so I don't have to worry about like tiptoeing around too much. Um, Good, but so when we talk about medical stuff, just real quick, is when you when you start looking at medical devices, you have to go down the FDA approval way, and and, and we do have uh, we do have some FDA approval that necessary for for the training world and and for the teaching type world. It's a whole nother level when you talk about getting FDA approval for real world application, like in operations and controlling stuff. So I, I just sort of want to put that out there as, you know, disclaimer type stuff that one, I'm not the FDA expert within my organization. Uh, we have extremely smart individuals to handle that uh, and then lawyers on that side. But, but when we start looking at the capabilities of what Vulcan, and that's our medical device line, because, you know, we're, I work with a bunch of NASA guys and girls that are extremely smart. So things like Vulcan come up as names. Um, so on the Vulcan, it's a, good name. Yeah, it's, a it's an excellent name, excellent name and, uh, and a, a trademark name for that. So um, on the Vulcan side, what we're able to do is primarily we're centered around the ultrasound wit. And, and for me as a lug nut, I didn't understand that ultrasounds was for anything beyond looking at, you know, tiny babies. <clears throat> and, and with our twins, you know, we did a lot of ultrasounds. Uh, as they were, as they were uh, growing, so but within the world of, of the medical, or within the medical world, ultrasounds have a tremendous amount of use. It's being used in all different types of applications, you know, to to get imagery itself, uh, whether it's with the veins, it's hearts. Uh, there's there's the fast uh, scan, the eFast scan, where basically you're looking for voids after a trauma incident to see if there's any internal bleeding. Uh, and, you know, you're looking around the lungs, you're looking around the heart, you know, things like that, because those internal bleedings are you know, very, very uh, dangerous, and we have to look at that immediately. So ultrasound has a lot of great applications beyond the OBGYN <laughs> world, which, again, I didn't know because I wasn't into it. What our technology does is it does a lot of the similar stuff that we just talked about, which is it projects in front of you. Uh, when you're in front of a patient, you're able to have that easy-to-see viewing screen 
of the ultrasound. Uh, so the doctor or, or the uh, sonographer, whoever it is, is going to have to constantly go back and forth, back and forth with their head for the needle guidance they're able to see in, in what we call uh, our chief medical officer. He's the one that coined it. Is a, is a, uh, it's not hands-off, it's hands-on because you're able to keep your hands on the patient while you have all your data you know, right in front of you in your, in your field of view. That's, again, that's, that's a crawling speed. <laughs> when we start looking at the, the walking speed and the running speed, that's when we get our, our, our AI, the artificial intelligence that we created. And it, it's, a, it's a deep machine learning uh, version of it. And just real quick, AI gets tossed around a lot, a lot. And vast majority, in my humble opinion, it's not AI. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, fear instilling. Well, it, it's not so much the fear instilling, but people use it as a marketing thing, is, okay. is what I'm saying. It's no, like, no. oh, yeah, we're, we got true AI that we're like, yeah, it's not AI. Uh, when we talk about deep machine learning, uh, we're talking about uh, data recognition. And most often it's used as imagery recognition. So what we're able to do through algorithms is we're able to see that, um, you know, through a whole bunch of yeses and nos, we're able to see that this imagery is of Justin instead of of Kent. So it's just imagery recognition. So we teach the machine to recognize a Coke can versus a Ford F-150 truck. That's pretty, you know, glaring difference. But we're able to go through and do those type of imagery recognition and deep machine learning. What we've done on the ultrasound side is we're able to get it and train it to identify in collaboration with the procedure you're trying to do or the scan you're trying to do. We're able to teach the machine to teach you on how to do that scan. So if, if, you, if you look at ultra, uh, ultrasound probe, you know, it's, it's really fairly small. It's about the size of your, your phone. And, and the movement of it, one you know, left, right, you know, up, down, you know, side to side, that can this is a little you, thing that kind of looks like a remote yep. control. Yeah, okay. it is. And, and the movement of that needs to be very, very precise. So what our technology is able to do is it's able, one, through a few different areas of technology, it's able to track where that probe is precisely using a, a magnetic GPS, uh, track it precisely, and then tell you if you need to move it to the left or move it to the right. So it starts doing guidance into of telling you how to use that probe correctly. Essentially, what it ends up doing is it takes someone like the three of us have never done this ultrasound stuff before, and it's able to guide us on how to do an appropriate scan. And it does it a couple of different ways. It does it, one, by using that magnetic GPS to guide where your, your uh, um, uh, scanner is, where your probe is. But it's also in real time reading the images it's getting back. And it's able to identify those images and tell you if you have a good image or not. And that's where that deep machine learning comes in. That's where that artificial intelligence comes in. And then how to improve that image. Exactly. Right. And, and so it starts giving you arrows to move a little bit more to the left. And then you know, and we have some mechanisms to, that you are able to see as a user, you know, how to get it, you know, get, get it the ball on correctly type of stuff. Um, the next stage of that is whenever we start having it to where it's able to do the diagnostic in real time. So now it's able to tell you in real time that you have a 50% clog of your artery. Is this existed now or is this where you're going? That's that's where we're hit. Well, <laughs> without revealing too much, that's uh, coming to a theater Reveal. theater near you soon. Um, because that's what that that's what NASA was asking of us. You know, NASA was uh, obligated to 
go to Mars back in 2005, I think it was by then President Bush. And, and one of the things that NASA wanted to see out there and they put out the request was, you know, one of the issues is we can't send a highly specialized surgeon or doctor or all the various medical fields of all the various things that we could encounter on that two-year trip to Mars or, or three-year trip to Mars. And also the time delay was an issue. And what I mean by time delay is the speed of light between here and Mars. You're looking at anywhere from 20 to 25 minutes one-way communication. So if I'm sitting there trying to get help on a medical issue on Mars and I'm getting back on the you know, phone with, with uh, Houston or with the uh, Earth, it's a 45-minute round trip and I've got to wait. So, and we're not even talking about the issues, you know, as you're going there type stuff. So we're talking about how do we deal with not having all the, the Earth's collective medical knowledge available to someone on Mars because we can't send all the doctors. So we started going down the road of doctor in a box, doc in a box, which is where we are starting. That's where we've been moving towards with our company is that we are developing that aspect of it. And in our ability to, to make those real-time assessments is getting better and better and better. And that's why we were having those conversations with some of the other medical giants out there here recently, because we've already got the patents for it. And one of them already tried to go down that road. And we were able to you know, politely inform him, hey, we already got it. I'm going to defend uh, your position a bit. We, we were. And it's it, because the, this team, you know, these teams that we have working on this are just that spectacular. You know, these Titronics engineers, the, the men and women there are just so incredibly gifted. Where is this at? Where is your facility? So our, our main uh, facility is down in uh, uh, Clear Lake. Okay. A couple of blocks away from the NASA. Of course. And so, and. And this is one aspect of all the behavioral or the uh, the human sciences aspects that we do and things like that. But well, one thing I you know that came to mind when you were talking is it advances. It sounds like there there's going to be a benefit to EMS workers because if you can get to someone, especially in more rural areas, mm -hmm. right? Someone in someone that's had an accident, someone's had some kind of trauma. You're 30 minutes away from a hospital. That transit time could mean the difference, right? Yeah. It, it a, absolutely can't. And 30 minutes is, that's that's for, short. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about rural, you're talking about yeah. an hour, hour and a half. So um, that could that could change things if they could, you know, if EMS workers can get a, and be taught real time. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, these EMS workers are fantastically trained people. Mm -hmm. But they may not be a heart doctor or, a, right. you know, they're not there. So it, it could help them. And yeah, I, I could see a benefit there, too. You know, we, you, you, we actually had a great trial that went on the last, uh, the last quarter of last year. Uh, dealing specifically with that. One of the, um, the people we were doing the trial with is their, their medics, they, they go into the houses a lot. So being able to do that, that, uh, that ultrasound, they're in the off or in the house and be able to cap, you know, they're not, they're not reading the images, but they're capturing the great images. When you're looking at 30% of ultrasound images need to be reshot. That's a 30% failure rate of people. So you're talking about delay in, 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 in seeing what's wrong with them. You're talking about costs of redoing this. You know, there, there's a, a whole list of things that if you get a great ultrasound shot in the start, it's going to be better for everyone. So, so that is there, but, but let me throw another one out there. And this is what we were um, talking when I was over in Cairo a couple weeks ago, I was talking to them about, which is, you know, this technology getting, getting proper medical treatment, accurate medical treatment 
for people in developing countries that are not in these cities is absolutely critical. So this mm. is where Fantastic. This is where we as a company are really, really passionate about and where we want to see this technology. Whereas you put some of this hardware like the HoloLens 2, again, it's not hundreds of thousands or twenty, fifty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, but now we're looking at putting that on someone's head at a remote village and doing yeah, why, that diagnostic work. Well, yeah, exactly. Why couldn't the, the engineering, the same thing with the engineering you talked about earlier, mm -hmm. an engineer on, on a computer yep. in Malaysia is helping someone in Angola. Mm-hmm. Fix a pipe. Why couldn't a, a doctor in New York help someone in, you know, Indonesia do something medically or it, help medically? And and that's where the same way. It, so so that's what we're doing moving forward. But that's now it's a wonderful. how do we how do we grow it quick enough? Yeah. Because now it's the you know my goodness, there's so many people that we can help. Mm -hmm. And in in the the thrust in the university hospital that we're working with over in Cairo is not just looking at there for Egypt, but it's looking at how to push it onto all of Africa. And, but now you're talking about an infrastructure that needs to be established. Now you're talking about, you know, You're running into bandwidth problems and things like that. Yeah, it, well, well, part of it's, yeah, part, well, you're absolutely right there, Justin, uh, the, the bandwidth issues infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about having the infrastructure set up. You know, that's, is it like a call center type stuff? Who's gonna oh, be taking these calls? You know, who's gonna be tied into this? You know, now we're really getting into how to make this go from a great idea into a really practical running thing. And that's where working with the University Hospital over there is they've got a lot of the infrastructure. Uh, but same thing that we had discussion with, uh, you know, uh, the hospitals over in Israel is how do we get the infrastructure set up so that they can start getting this technology out into the fields? Because yeah. a lot of Israel, you know, it's not just it's not just Jews. It's also Arabs. Mm -hmm. And there is a level of you know we we don't trust technology for for people that are you know living off of the land as nomads and like the Benuets and things like that. My dad doesn't in the United States doesn't trust technology. My my father in law yeah. same thing and it's it, it's all there. So so you know, on the on here in the United States side is getting this technology into retirement homes because now they don't have to constantly go out and see doctors back and forth. That doctor can get on the head of one of those nurses and see everything in front of them. That quality of life is now that much better for that individual person in the retirement home. That's another major push that we're looking to start here by well, Q3, which is what today? So we're yeah. trying yeah. to do that. It's There's a lot going on on the medical field side because it, it just makes sense. Yeah. So That is, you know, I'm glad you came here to talk about the, you know, you know Justin and I, like I said, we're associated <laughs> with the oil field. I was way more fascinated with the medical side of it exponentially greater. Right. And the effect on humanity seems to be, or the potential yeah. uh, effect on humanity seems to be, uh, you know, a lot larger and I really like it. And, 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 and I, you know, even after this conversation, I'm going to, I'm going to do some more learning into what you're doing. <laughs> I'm probably, I'm probably going to start to be a brat to you. It's like, it's got to stop emailing me here, but uh, um you know, all, all the benefits I see, you know, I see a lot of, obviously the health, the, the medical benefits is just going to keep growing. That's mm -hmm. what's wonderful about it. It just keeps expanding, um, you know, on the safety side. You know, we talked oil and gas, but really what we were talking is industrial, right? Yeah. That could have, we could have exchanged that with a, a, a motor vehicle plant. Absolutely. You know, it's the same, it's the same application. So you got a lot of, you know, you're taking people off the road, you're, mm -hmm. you're getting less travel requirement. You're you're helping uh, companies that uh, have new employees that aren't trained very well. 
And these things are learning on their own. And it's just a fascinating technology that is the future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I thank you very much for for coming on board. Is there anything else you want to say about your company? Anything? Do you want to break some news here? You want to tell (laughs) us some secrets? Uh, I I can't go down to that. So probably the other really neat thing that we've worked on is is a much better version of uh, uh, that program that that sounds like Beery, you know, or... or, uh, Siri, you know, Alexa, and so uh, this is me, yeah. me being trying to be cute and failing, of course, is, is we, uh, I was following it, but Jeff was confused. I yeah. was not following <laughs> it. Was I was tracking. I was yeah. like, oh man, it's that, it's that Georgia boy coming out in. <laughs> I'm, oh, a, I'm no. an Android guy. Yeah. One of the, one of the issues that I say issues, but I, you know, like us, we use, we use Alexa in, in our house is it can only go so far. Hey, Alexa, what's the weather like today? You know, well, Kent, it's going to be sunny. Uh, thank you, Alexa. Is it going to be sunny next four days? Here's the forecast next four days that, oh, you know, and then if you try to ask a follow on question from that, it starts losing itself very, very quickly. Um, our software that we developed on that is it keeps going and going and going. And it's a much, much smoother way of talking, uh, much more casual. So then it becomes on the medical side, uh, you're looking at a, hey, um, whatever, you know, Siri, if you want to call that or, or Vulcan. Uh, Vulcan, bring me a patient number two seven five eight. Let me bring up the X rays from two weeks ago, and then it brings up those X rays from two weeks ago. Or if you're out there in, in the field, uh, you know, Vul- or you know, Pro G is what we call it. You know, Pro G, bring up uh, the last, uh, bring up the maintenance report for the last two years of pump number seventy eight. Mm. Being able to speak like that, it just it, more conversational. It's yeah, and that's what it is. It's much more conversational and. And that has probably been one of the neater things I've been able to play around with and we've been able to use and getting that integrated into it because it's this is something that's coming, not something that's actually Well, there. no, it's something that we have now. I haven't we haven't I haven't, you know, we haven't pushed it over into the commercialization yet. Okay. Um it's uh but we're we're getting awfully close to it. Awfully close. That conversational of yeah, you guys were just uh kind of it had started development when we were playing with this stuff and there was still some fine tuning that had to go on and it was pretty cool. One thing when I was looking at this years ago and I was looking at with my old uh, boss, we were looking at possibly getting into some, you know, we found that people weren't ready. You know, this is probably 2014, 15, 16. Um, One of the concerns that I read about when doing, you know, research on you and, 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 and and I want you just to say, to address it Mm -hmm. because I know you've heard it the possible psychological effects of, 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 of hmm. living in a, in an AR world or VR world. There was, there's com- some concern there publicly. I don't know yep. if it's valid. I don't I, know if it's valid, but how do you, how do you and your company address that? So I, I think it, I think it is more valid on the VR side than mm-hmm. the AR side. Uh, and we do a heavy, we do a lot of VR stuff as well. Training environments. Uh, we did one scenario, I think it was for, uh, uh, it was for around here. It was for hazmat training. Basically, there was a big chemical spill back 20, 30, 40 years ago in 610. We basically recreated that whole thing. And so you can go through training as a medical person that arrived on the scene, the, the policeman that arrived on the scene first, you know, things like that. So it, I think that that is something that is a little bit more real when it comes to the VR side because you can be so lost in it. Uh, on the V, I don't think it's going to go that far on the VR side until we have the the quality to a uh, quality of imagery that you forget what you're looking at yeah, almost the ready player one stuff where you're exactly. wearing a suit that 
you feel it's you're completely immersed in it that yeah that'd be it's a problem and, and i mean we do have haptic uh, feedback that's basically you know you can have feedback now mm-hmm. on things you know like if you're grabbing something it feels like you're grabbing something through like gloves and such the suit that you're talking about it's like the entire body so somebody mm-hmm. in the game touches you on the shoulder i think from there you do have it i don't think you're going to see it from the augmented side and it's because you're still in the real world you're still able to see everything so I was reading um, a psychologist, um, and I can't remember. I know they're from Europe, but he, he was talking about depression, or she was talking about depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her theory, and, and I like the theory a lot. Her, the theory was um, the reason why we're so anxious and so depressed is because our we haven't adapted to how quickly <laughs> life got so much easier and safer. Mm. And we cannot handle it, so we create problems in our head, and that's and and that's a and she she bought, she backed this up a lot. I, I mean, think you just summed up the entire U.S. political debates back and forth is us creating problems in our head. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, if you think about it, it is because we do fret over. We, I mean, people are committing suicide over things that shouldn't be thought about for more than an hour. Yeah, I mean, so it, it is the case, and and I I, I wonder. You know, you know, going down the path Justin just mentioned, is it, you know, how how advanced can we get too quickly, and, yeah. and is it is it going to really mess with our psyche and who we are as a as, as an animal? Right. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what that is. That is a, a age old question of mm-hmm. when is technology helping us too much? Yeah. And and you know, in sci fi in the science fiction genre, they address this a lot. You know, have we gone too far? And, and you'll. It's not uncommon, you know, in that genre to see the, you know, the people they're trying to stick to the roots and they're not about advanced technology, stuff like that. Um, I think that there is some truth to that. Um, it's I think collectively we as a society, we. We. We only go so far back when we, when we talk about history of we only go so back to look to what's applicable to us. So, you know, the human life is, is a very short time span, you know, 60, 80 years. But when we look at how technology is, is advanced over the last, you know, 2,000 years and such, that's where we, and, and I'm not making sense of this, so let me rephrase all this stuff. We as humans do a really poor job of learning from the people that came before us. And so each generation that we have, like our kids and such, they are seeing stuff, of course, for the first time. And we do a poor job of teaching them how we got there mm-hmm. and, and what we had to go through. And, and I would even argue that in today's world, we do a worse job of teaching that history. You know, we're removing history. And, and, and we go down a whole digressive session you know, of you and I talking about this. But good or bad, history needs to be taught. And my education, my, under, my undergrad work and the, the little bit of postgrad stuff I did is history. I'm a historian by education. There's something I want to talk to you so, about sure. after, offline after that. But because uh, right now we're out of time. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, Kent, thank you so very much for coming on. This conversation is fascinating. It went in a direction and information I didn't know was even going to come. <laughs> so I'm really thankful you uh, come. Justin Overstreet, once again, fantastic uh, co-host with me. Thank you for being here. Sure. Uh, Tynovix, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where the listeners can get information on your company? Absolutely. So I'll just go to our website, www.tynovix.com. That's T-I-E-N-O-V-I-X.com. And uh, we're real proud of what we do. I think they're going to be interested. I think they're going to love it. Thank you very much, sir. And um, that's all. All Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. 
We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.